So one of the most interesting relationships in all of history to me actually goes back to the founding of our country. And that's the relationship between George Washington and Lafayette. Stu, if you look at the two principal characters who probably meant the most to American independence, obviously there's George Washington, but few people know of the incredible contributions that this young man, the Marquis de, de Lafayette, gave to America. Stu, not only was he a very good general, but it was his connections with the French court um, that secured the financing that the Americans needed and also um, the armies and the navies that the French supplied to the revolution. At Yorktown, there were more French troops there than there were American troops. Yeah. And before we get too ahead of ourselves, let's just go into the kind of ancestry of this guy, his early history, because it's it's so cool. I mean, it his life reads like a movie, like a fairy tale. It's just one of the most amazing lives of all time. Not only was he like a Clint Eastwood badass, but he was a thoroughly, thoroughly good man like Washington. Yeah. So born in France, his family boasted one of the most amazing lineages of all time. They had fought with Joan of Arc. They had fought in the Crusades. That's his daddy's side. On his mama's side, um, he was descended from the Musketeers, so the royal guards to the French crown. His father dies in battle when he's two years old, and his family is even aware of the British soldier who killed his dad. And so Lafayette is kind of raised knowing this is the man out there who killed your father. And, you know, you are training to be a warrior, to be a soldier, to be a, a commander of men. And you may have to go fight him one day. And so it kind of puts this kind of seed in him of disliking the British. And so by the time he starts to go to Paris and leave the idyllic French countryside of his upbringing behind him, he is kind of preparing himself to be this true soldier for life. Well, let's tell everybody that he, he went to military school at a very young age. And I think what's interesting, um, you know, we're talking about the French nobility here. Was very, family relationships were very important. He married his wife, Andrianne, when he was 16. And it was an arranged marriage, and he had never met her before. But they did hit it off, though. And yeah, they were they in actually, love. They did fall in love, which is nice. Not everyone had right. that luxury back then. Right. But because he was so gung-ho to fight the British, his uncle-in-law was actually the French ambassador to the British crown. And so they actually sent Lafayette to England to go work under him to kind of temper this kind of anti-British streak that he had because he kept an eye on what was going on in the colonies and was very interested about what was going on with this talk of liberty. And we don't really know initially if he had pure thoughts where he truly believed in liberty as an ideal or if he saw this as his opportunity to prove himself, to get his uh, militaristic valor and to show that he does come from this noble French line of warriors. 
Well, he obviously does that, but I think plenty of evidence exists that he was an idealist at an early age. Um, a good story, when he was uh, in England, he apparently met George III and gave him somewhat of a tongue lashing as like a 17-year-old. He challenged him on, um, on, on the war being prosecuted against the colonies. And he said, why shouldn't you just let them go? And, and for that, he gets sent back to France. And once he gets back to France, the French king at the time does this official decree that says no French officer is to go over and fight in the American Revolutionary War. And he even cites by name, and this definitely includes like Lafayette, so the French king has to get involved and say, do not go over there. But what happens? Well, um, a relative died and he inherited an amazing amount of wealth. His family was kind of petty no, um, nobility. And uh, all of a sudden he becomes one of the wealthiest guys um, in England. Now, his mother had, had moved in. Um, with the palace at Versailles and became part of the royal court, as I remember. And um, Lafayette was exposed to that and um, he didn't like it much. Um, but then the Americans sent over Silas Dean to recruit French officers. And he had an opportunity to meet Dean, as I recall. You can correct me, Stu. And uh, he became very enthusiastic for the cause. And with the money and wealth he had, he um, bought his own ship. He set up a voyage to America. He had never been on the ocean before. Never been on a ship, I don't think. Well, yeah, he had been on a ship, but he'd never been on an ocean before uh, across the English Channel. During his um, several week trip, uh, he taught himself English. <laughs> Pretty impressive. The ship lands um, outside of Georgetown, South Carolina. It is, um, I think, pursued by some ships. They thought they were British ships, but they weren't. A uh, landowner met them and took them to Charleston. And I think it's, it's interesting. He was on that ship with some other Frenchmen, officers. Lafayette wrote an incredible amount of correspondence. And immediately, he's in love with America. Not just beautiful Charleston, but going up the upcountry and headed towards Philadelphia. He loved it. The other French hated everything about it, hated the mosquitoes, the people, the food. But Lafayette writes about how much he loves it all. Well, he gets to Philadelphia. And guess what? They turn him away. Yeah, they, they <laughs> slam the door in his face. Because there were a lot of pretenders back then. People who would fake a French accent like Pepe Le Pew and say, hello, I'm here from, you know, uh, from the palace at Versailles, and I want to fight. Yeah, and there were so many French officers arriving there who had no military experience. Lafayette technically has no military experience at this time, and a lot of them don't speak English as well. So it's actually the recommendation of Benjamin Franklin who gave Lafayette a letter 
he pulled it out. He came back and he pulled the letter out. And so that is what cements him. And so this leads to him becoming a camp aide. Do you know what else helped him, Stu? Money. No pay. Yeah. He said he would serve for free. And, of course, as I'm sure you're going to tell everybody, he fitted out his own troops with his own wealth. Yeah. When he got a command. So he becomes a camp aide to George Washington. They like each other immediately. And with Washington not having kids, he has all these young officers around him, but he only really takes a liking to Lafayette. Alexander Hamilton's around at the same time, but Hamilton and Washington butt heads a little bit. And many times Alexander Hamilton threatens to be reassigned due to how tense their relationship can be. But Lafayette is initially given this honorary role. And many think, many historians think this was to just be there and to bankroll things. And it was just a nice causality of history that Washington actually liked this guy at the same time. But then we get to his first combat experience, which is Brandywine. And I will say before Brandywine, he was chomping at the bit, kind of like a dog biting at your heels, begging Washington to get into the action. Yes. And I believe there's even a letter that he had sent his wife where he said, I would very much like to have my own battalion of Virginia men. Along those lines, Virginia was his favorite state. Yeah. Matter of fact, he named the daughter Virginia. Mary Antoinette Virginia. Yeah. Continue, Stu. He gets to Brandywine, and the thought there was that if the British thought if they could win at Brandywine and they could capture Philadelphia, that the whole Revolutionary War would end there. It would be like the equivalent of capturing London and England, that this was the seat of power, and if you capture this, they win. And so even though it's not a complete defeat for the colonials, they do have to retreat. And so the battle is looking so bad that Washington sends Lafayette to go handle one of the flanks. I believe it's the right flank. And so he goes and he covers the retreat there. And he is essentially the last person to leave, despite the fact that he's been hit in his leg and he's injured. Well, Mass, say this, he did more than that in the sense that the colonials were retreating in disarray. He rides up. He's 19, 20 years old, something, uh, never been in command. He raises his sword and he orders the line back into formation. And as a result, he got a bullet wound in his calf, but the Americans had an orderly retreat. And um, that orderly retreat allowed them to fight another day. Yeah. And another foreign Revolutionary War hero who's also fighting at Brandywine is actually uh, Kazimir Pulaski. Just an an interesting footnote to also add to this, who was another cavalry-focused European fighting in the American Revolutionary War. But it's there where he proves himself, and that is where he starts to kind of have this ascent. And he's with Washington throughout that brutal winter including Valley Forge. And it's said that he relished the challenge of the brutality during this time. Well, he was also um, linked with James Monroe in battle and Monroe liked him a great deal. And he was at Monmouth's courthouse in the Battle of Rhode Island. 
and uh, you're right. He kind of liked Valley Forge. I mean, he had a warrior's spirit. Let's just say, Stu, he was not a pussy. True, he was not a pussy. And to kind of flesh out his relationship with Washington at this time, Washington has a lot of people who are essentially blowing smoke up his butt during this time. There are a lot of people scheming to replace Washington. Remember, things aren't going too hot during this time. And so Lafayette at this time is kind of one of Washington's truly trusted advisors. And so Lafayette sent this to his wife. In this place he occupies, he is surrounded by flatterers and secret enemies. He finds in me a trustworthy friend in whom he can confide and who will always tell him the truth. Not a day goes by without his talking to me at length or writing long letters to me. And he is willing to consult me on most interesting points. And so... And Stu, in modern day, there would be politicians who would blow smoke up somebody's ass and say, oh, I'm very close to the president. I'm very close to this. He wasn't kidding. He, he was absolutely truthful about his relationship with George Washington. Yeah, absolutely. And Washington was very stoic, and he didn't really like to have too much physical contact with people. There's some interesting stories that go back to this time period where there would be bets where, like, Someone bet Robert Morris to um, put his hand on Washington's shoulder and give him a better boy. And Washington just like peels the hand off of him and drops it. So lots of funny stuff, but he was truly affectionate with Lafayette. There was a lot of good love there. And so they get through the winter and that is when France comes in and says, we formally recognize American independence and we're gonna help you, which then leads to Lafayette going on leave to see his wife and to talk to the French crown, which he's so well, close with. If I may qualify that, Stu, he wanted to stay and fight, but Washington urged him to go back home and to lobby the French government for troops and ships and money. Yeah. And so he arrives back in France and he's immediately arrested. And this is kind of to save face for the French royals where he did disobey. So they have to do something to say, you've been bad, but they really don't mean it. And so Lafayette's idea was that France would actually invade Great Britain and give them a second front essentially to have to fight. So not only are they fighting in the, in the Americas, but they're also now having to deal with an invasion of their country. And Spain actually would have gotten involved with this as well. And so by the end of 1779, his son is born. And what does he name Lafayette? What does Lafayette name his son? George Washington. Yeah. So on December 24th, 1779, George Washington Motier de Lafayette is born. And Lafayette said that he named his son after Washington as, and this is what Lafayette says, a tribute of respect and love for my dear friend. Mm. And George Washington Lafayette was one of Lafayette's three children to survive into adulthood and his only son. Well, Stu, he didn't just hang around uh, Frogland, now did he? Uh, he came back and got into the fray again. Yes, yeah, so he returns with 6,000 French soldiers who are led by... Rochambeau. Right on. And Stu... Washington gave him a command. 
the war was not to, no disrespect to the people of the North uh, the, or the Continental Army, but the war was really won in the South. And, um, you know, Cornwallis was being kind of pushed around or following the colonials from um, uh, Charleston all the way up through North Carolina. By this time, uh, he had gotten into Virginia and Washington ordered Lafayette to kind of pin Cornwallis down and, and harass him. And he wanted to do that until the rest of the army could get there. And he was stationed down around uh, Chesapeake, kind of, I think, around the Elizabeth River. Um, and he did an excellent job of that. And it's some say uh, Cornwallis could not break out of York. Yorktown was a terrible position to be in. Uh, and Cornwallis could not break out. And military historians say that it has a lot to do with um, Lafayette. And his, he only had, you know, two, two or 3,000 troops to do that with. Yeah. And I'm just going to rewind just a little bit because it, it's a really cool little thing I want to focus on. So we're in 1781 now. And that's on October 19th, the Battle of Yorktown ends. But just a few months before that, you actually have Benedict Arnold coming to Richmond, Virginia, and he burns down a lot of the city, and the Virginia militia gets involved, Lafayette gets involved and chases him off. Arnold approaches Lafayette through letters to do a prisoner exchange. Lafayette sends them back, and George Washington thinks that's really badass and says, I cannot approve more of you, but at this time, when he's doing all this maneuvering in Virginia, Lafayette feels slighted. And he feels like Washington doesn't trust him. And this is kind of a position that doesn't befit his talents. So he's kind of frustrated at this time. But the interesting thing about kind of all of this is that Washington has him there because he trusts him most. And Lafayette has a lot of doubt in himself because Fighting Cornwallis is very intimidating to him, and he feels that at the slightest engagement with those few troops that he does have that he himself is paying for and making sure they're outfitted and petitioning the French crown to send more supplies to make sure his troops are happy. So he is a, he's a really good commander in the sense that he's taking care of the men under his command. And so he feels like he's playing this ultimate chess game with Cornwallis, and he's just He's holding the line. He's maneuvering. They do have some excursions back and forth. And then finally, when Washington comes all the way down and gets in position, this is allowing them to really block him in. And that's where you get the kind of interesting things where they're doubting attacking Redoubt 9 and Redoubt 10. And they think the British have all this black powder that they can just blow everyone up. And they think maybe they've run out of black powder because they've been blockaded. And that's when we really have the climax of the Battle of Yorktown. Exactly. And if folks don't know about that, redoubts are defensive, defensive positions. And at Yorktown, uh, the um, Americans had Cornwallis under siege. They would take these defensive positions called redoubts. The last one that had to be taken was redoubt number nine. Um, 
Washington gave the glory to Alexander Hamilton to lead the troops, and Lafayette was right there with them. So on the, the climax of the war, Lafayette was there in battle with a you know, small amount of men, um, and that caused the British lines to pretty much collapse and Cornwallis surrender. Yes, and so Lafayette takes nine, Hamilton takes 10, Cornwallis surrenders, and is Cornwallis present at the surrender? No, he was a pussy. He sent his uh, aide-de-camp. But, but what, the, what the band played was, um, well, what the British band played was, was the world turned upside down. Yeah, and so it's kind of there where Washington and Lafayette part ways. They correspond a lot through letters. And during the revolution, you do start to have some political tension that leads to Lafayette being imprisoned. But before that, in July of 1789, Lafayette actually tears down the Bastille and France seeing it as a sign of oppression and a sign of the excess of the monarchy and he actually sends the key to the Bastille to George Washington. And that key is still at Mount Vernon to this day, which is pretty cool, I think. Well, during the troubles after the French Revolution, um, Lafayette had come back and he was a hero. He was the most famous man in France. And he used his inf influence to keep the tensions down. He was there at the tennis court affair um, a couple of times. Troops, there was once when the troops tried to march upon, well, the mob tried to march upon the king and take them prisoner. And Lafayette, who had a white charger like George Washington, he subdued the crowd and he had a um, rosette with the three colors on it, uh, red, white, and blue. Um, and that pacified the crowd. And he was a stabilizing influence for a long time. Matter of fact, as we progress through this discussion, he was also like George Washington in that being the most popular man in France, uh, he could have been king as well. Um, but he believed in liberty and a Republican form of government. We all know how the French Revolution progressed, but by 1793, you had the reign of terror and Robespierre was head of the committee and they killed lots of folks. And Lafayette, he, he was although he was very popular, um, because of his birth, um, they often thought that he was a royalist. Um, and then some of the royalists often thought uh, that he was somewhat of a Jacobin, but he wasn't. He was a guy in the middle who believed in small r Republican ideals. And um, the French king, as is often the case in history, he was having a bad time 
of it. So he did what a lot of people do, um, a lot of kings do, um, is, is he declared war. And he declared war on Austria, Lafayette. And he was excited about this because he was, you know, martial man. But he got captured by the Austrians and the Austrians thought that he was a danger to civilized order. Let's not forget at this time, you had this revolutionary uh, government that was out of control and killing folks. Um, and then you had the stability of the monarchy of which the Habsburgs believed in. So what happens to Lafayette? He's in prison for five years. And during that time, Lafayette's wife is in prison. Um, uh, again, the reign of terror in Robespierre, they wanted to kill her. They did that to tens of thousands of people. You know, she was um, nobility. And guess who intervened on behalf of uh, Lafayette's wife. James Monroe gets involved. Yeah, I mean, and then, it's just... and then secures for George Washington Lafayette to actually flee to America, and he ends up staying out Mount Vernon for two years while things stabilize. Just to kind of give you an idea of how close Washington and Lafayette were, as the um, revolution kind of uh, got the kinks out of it. Um, Robespierre is replaced by the Directory. Um, the Directory fights a war um, for five years against the Austrians, the Prussians, the English. Um, they, defe they defeat the Austrians. Um, and then there's peace again around um, 1798 or so. Um, by this time, Napoleon, um, becomes a member of the House of Deputies and is a very influential person in, in Paris. So soon after Washington dies in December of 1799. And so Lafayette does eventually get word of this. And it, it's very sad for him that Washington has passed away. But it's kind of nice that his son got to be there with Washington for some of the last years of Washington's life. Are we ready to talk about his arrival back in 1824 still? Or? Yeah, yeah, take that away. Okay, well, in 1824, Lafayette returns to America. And still, it's like the Rolling Stones on steroids. America had never seen anything like this before. The, he was uh, he was so beloved, and there would be balls and galas and events um, all over the the country. He traveled all over the the country, and everywhere he went, he was met by I mean hordes of people, um, little counties that only had twenty thousand people in them, all fifty. 15,000 of them would show up. He was a founding member of the Society of the Cincinnati. Uh, he was the only foreigner to be so. Uh, when it first was formed, um, foreigners could not be a, a member, but they said, oh no, this doesn't apply to you, Lafayette. Um, 
We didn't mention, but that when Benedict Arnold came to Richmond, uh, Jefferson was the governor and he fled. And during this time, he met Lafayette and they became very close as well. And um, they say that nobody ever saw Jefferson weep before. And um, Lafayette traveled to Monticello to see Jefferson and people say that Jefferson hugged him and he cried. And no one had ever seen Jefferson cry before. Um, he was the only, he was the first foreigner to address a joint session of Congress. He became an um, honest, honorary citizen of Virginia. And Stu, I don't know how many towns and counties around the, the country are named Lafayette. A lot of them. He, while he was in America, he took a bug, he, he went to Bunker Hill and he dug up a bunch of dirt. Okay. Well, after his, um, how long was he here, Stu? Two years or more? It was a long time. Yeah. And I know after he left, Jefferson even wrote him and asked him to become governor of Louisiana and that he would make him governor of Louisiana on the spot which I believe he had refused. And I believe when he comes back to America, he's also becomes a U.S. citizen at that time, even though like in the 2000s, Congress makes him a citizen again. No. Well, when he gets back, um, you know, the revolution is over, obviously. And Charles X is on the throne, monarch. And Charles X starts to be authoritarian, and he bans freedom of the press, uh, who steps in for France and assuages the situation? Lafayette. Um, he spoke out against the dictator, against um, the king. It looked like it was gonna be a bloodbath, you know, July, 1830. Lafayette saves the day and then uh, arranges for King Louis Philippe to become the king, who was a well-liked king. But before Lafayette kind of throws his weight totally behind Louis Philippe, he gives him a dressing down. And he, uh, he told him he has his blessing as long as he upholds Republican principles. He went to a funeral in 1834, got pneumonia, and died. Now, Stu, who, who else did that? Who else got pneumonia and died? Benjamin Harrison? Well, yeah, but George Washington. Oh, true, true. I mean, it's just kind of bizarre. When he's buried, the dirt he dug up at Bunker Hill is part of his grave. To this day... The cemetery, I think it's Cemetery de Picpus, right? Yeah, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I don't know how to pronounce it in French. In Paris, um, and they play the uh, Marseille and the Star Spangled Banner there um, it, every day. It's open 24 hours a day. The American flag flies there in Paris. And I know that the Sons of the Revolution and the Society of the Cincinnati uh, lays a wreath on his grave every year. And it's a, it's quite a production. 
Now, Stu, why don't you tell everybody about how his death was treated in the United States? Sure. So Andrew Jackson is president when he dies in 1834. And so Lafayette actually receives the same memorial honors that had been bestowed upon Washington when he died in December of 1799. Both houses of Congress were draped in black bunting for 30 days and members wore mourning badges. Congress urged Americans to follow similar mourning practices. And then later that year, uh, former President John Quincy Adams gave a eulogy for Lafayette that lasted three hours. And during this three hour eulogy, one of the better quotes was that Adams called him high on the list of pure and disinterested benefactors of mankind. A very beautiful and flowery way to say that he was such a giving person to mankind and wanted to help mankind and didn't care about his own personal station. And he was very much like George Washington in that regard. Stu, a remarkable, remarkable man, not just because what he did in the American Revolution, but like Washington, he had a noble sense of character that is just rare in the annals of human affairs. And, um, you know, all over the United States, obviously, Washington's name is plastered on many towns and counties and things like that. And we kind of forget about Lafayette. Uh, his name is as well. And, um, and um, I don't think we should forget about him when we ought to remember him as a Franco-American hero. Absolutely. And he's called the hero of both worlds nowadays. And it's due to the fact that he stood for liberty and freedom in the Americas and also in the old world itself, which is a pretty awesome title to have. Yeah. yeah. Um, rare is someone like him born and accomplishes what he did. And Stu, like a lot of our, our heroes, it's not just about martial conquest. It's about honor nobility, courage, many manly virtues, but self-sacrifice self is certainly one of them. And, and temperance, the idea to know that you don't need to be dictator, much like Cal Washington, who we are alluding to him being the somewhat spiritual father of Lafayette, both craving in each other, uh, a father and a son, and that you see Washington turned down the opportunity to be essentially king of America. And Lafayette essentially turns down the opportunity to be made this, you know, dictator of France during the really rough times during the revolution. Well, we're very close um, a week or two just after Father's Day. And again, um, perhaps that's a lesson that fathers really do have influence over their progeny. And, um, Something about Lafayette and Washington, where they looked into each other's souls and they found um, so much to their liking. Yeah, the missing piece that they had always wanted. Yes, Lafayette, biological father, he probably never remembered him. George Washington didn't have a son. They were a perfect match. Their relationship is what essentially saves this country. Without it, we would not have America, most likely. 
Here, here. To Lafayette. To Lafayette. Hey, if y'all watched all the way to the end and enjoyed this podcast, I suggest you give us a like, a subscription, and you share this sucker out for all your friends to learn some good old American history. Gonna hold a revolution now, King, and we're gonna run it all away with no, no more, more king. king. We're gonna elect a president. No, no more king. He's gonna do what the people want. No, no more king. We're gonna run things our way. No more king. What's to do? Rocking and a rolling, swishing and a splashing over the horizon. What can it be? Looks like it's going to be a free country.